Hello and welcome to this latest episode of our podcast series on the evidence base. Today, focusing on the benefits and challenges associated with integrating patient-relevant outcomes from drug development to clinical practice. I'm your host, Ilana Landau, the editor of The Evidence Base, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Donna Messner, the president and CEO of the Center for Medical Technology Policy in Maryland in the US, as we discuss barriers towards adoption of patient-relevant outcomes into healthcare research and decision-making. Donna, thank you very much for joining us today. I am delighted to be here. Excellent. Well, Donna, for our audience, could you please kick off by introducing yourself, telling us some more about your current position and your research activities? Uh, Absolutely. So, um, uh, again, my name is Donna Messner, and as you said, I'm the president and CEO for the Center of Medical Technology Policy. Uh, We're an independent nonprofit center located in Baltimore, Maryland. And what we do, our mission is to make healthcare more effective and affordable by improving the quality, relevance, and efficiency of clinical research. And if I can just take a minute to focus a little bit more on that mission, you know, why are we focused on clinical research? What do we think needs improving? Um, If you think about it, clinical evidence touches everything in our health system. It determines which medicines we choose for patients and why. It determines which medicines they even have access to uh, through the regulatory process and through um, their, in the U.S., it would be insurance coverage. In in other countries, it would be um, through, um, you know, national processes for determining, you know, which medicines will be um, provided. Um, It helps to inform value assessments and negotiations over drug pricing. It informs development of clinical pathways and clinical guidelines that get used in delivering care. So getting it right, having high quality, relevant information for all these decisions as early as possible is incredibly important to assure patients get the care they need and get it paid for, get access to it in a timely fashion. So, you know, these days we're swimming in health-related data, right? It's, it's everywhere. But when you look at the system as a whole, what you see is a lot of inefficiency. Um, data is not the same thing as evidence. And as a system, we're wasting a lot of money and time and patient resources, their time, their contributions and studies on research that does not build a body of evidence that is coherent and patient-centered and informative for all these decisions. So um, we feel we need to do this better, and that's what my organization is focused on doing. So in short, we, we work with all key stakeholders to agree on where are the gaps, what are the studies that need to be done, and what are the outcomes that are most important to study. Excellent. Thank you. So what are some of the challenges and limitations associated with current endpoints used in clinical trials? Sure. Well, I would I would tend to put the challenges into three big buckets. And um, uh, and actually, before I describe the buckets, it might be good just to clarify some terminology, um, because the words the terms outcomes and endpoints tend to be used interchangeably, but, but there are some nuances that it might be good to just touch on briefly. Um, 
I use the word outcome to mean the what and the how of what you want to study. You know, so you're going to measure visual acuity with this method and these metrics at these time points. That's an outcome. And sometimes when people talk about outcomes, they tend to focus on the what and kind of set aside the how. And that's fine as long as everybody is using the word the same way. Um, then when I say endpoint, I'm thinking of it more specifically as an outcome that has been validated as a primary or secondary endpoint in a clinical trial. So that's a more specific, more technical um, view of, of an outcome. So with those clarifications, um, three buckets of challenges that I see for um, outcomes or endpoints in, in clinical trials. One. It's just a huge amount of inconsistency in the outcomes and endpoints that get used in clinical trials. Uh, if you look, for instance, at a uh, 2018 article in JAMA Ophthalmology, um, Ian Saldano was the lead author. Uh, the group found 105 unique outcomes across 138 randomized trials for dry eye. So, you know, there were almost as many unique outcomes as trials. And this, this isn't unusual, you know, I'm citing Ian's work because he's been doing a, a, a series of nice papers pointing up this problem in ophthalmology, but you, you can find papers like this and studies like this across all conditions. Um, so why is this a problem? Well, if you want to understand which treatments are best for which patients, you have to be able to make apples-to-apples -apples comparisons across the trials. If some are looking at visual acuity and others are looking at ocular burning, and if they're all measuring different things in different ways at different time points, then it becomes very difficult to make direct comparisons between studies. And, and you can't pool the data for analysis. Uh, systematic reviewers call this research waste because they end up throwing out a lot of the studies in their analyses uh, that can't be pooled because of these kinds of differences. Um, another challenge is that sometimes outcomes don't capture what is most important to patients. And I would add in other key stakeholders, but um, for right now, I'll just talk about the patient piece of it. Um, in oncology, for example, Patients sometimes complain that tumor response or progression-free survival type endpoints aren't very meaningful. Um, these endpoints demonstrate drug activity against cancer, but they don't correlate well to things that are really important to a lot of patients like quality of life or overall survival. You know, cancer patients will sit there and ask their doctors, um, will I be able to go to my son's wedding? Will I be able to see my granddaughter graduate from college. You know, these are the kinds of things that are very important to uh, cancer patients oftentimes, and they're related to quality of life and survival. They're not related to really tumor regression in any direct way. Um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's a challenge. Another challenge uh, or, or another example I could point to um, is the endpoints that are typically used in interventional trials for stimulant use disorders. And we're talking here about things like uh, the use of cocaine or methamphetamine. Interventional trials for this condition are looking for zero levels of substance in the urine. 
Meanwhile, you're talking about, you know, people whose lives are falling apart. There's a whole world of health and life improvements that would be important to folks who are seeking treatment for these conditions, and, and we're not capturing that. Um, a third challenge uh, related to outcomes and endpoints that get used in clinical trials is that clinical trials, the outcomes used in clinical trials aren't widely used in clinical practice. Um, this, this kind of disconnect happens a, a lot um, for a lot of reasons. Take, for example, something like the six-minute walk test. Um, it is what it sounds like. It's a timed test where you have the patient see how far they can walk in six minutes. Um, it is used to assess endurance or physical function and gets used across a lot of different conditions. Um, it requires a long, flat, straight, enclosed corridor, 30 meters in length, or in some versions, 20 meters. Um, this is a, a situation that a lot of academic centers or, or major clinical centers would be able to, uh, to meet, but a lot of community clinics do not have corridors that can meet the standard. So it just doesn't get done consistently in clinical practice because it's not feasible to do it. Um, but it is often used in clinical trials. So why is this type of thing a, a problem? As a drug goes through development and then gets into practice, we increasingly learn more about its, inform its performance in more diverse patient populations and settings than were used in the registration trials. Uh, this is sometimes called real-world evidence, right? So this kind of research is incredibly important for informing evolving coverage policies of payers and practice guidelines and patient care. And if you're not using the same measures in pre-market and post-market contexts, then you create a, a discontinuity, a lack of parities in the measures used before and after regulatory approval. It would be better to build that view of real-world performance more quickly and earlier, more efficiently, by creating a continuum of evidence that starts to build before products are approved. So, so those are the three main challenges I would point to. Absolutely, some, some really important points there. So on the back of that, what is the importance, you sort of touched on it in your answer as well, but what is the importance of reforming these endpoints or outcomes um, to be more patient relevant? How practically can this lead to improved healthcare decision-making, for example? Right, well, you know, in general, if we're using patient important outcomes in our research studies, that can then translate into drug approvals and care decision-making and value assessments and coverage policies that are more rooted in the priorities and values of patients and the things that are important to them. So, so that's, you know, that's important and that's um, uh, a, uh, a really um, a, a valid goal to achieve. But when I, when I talk about it in general terms, it sounds a little bit benign like we're only going for incremental benefits in the system. And, it, and in some cases, maybe it is only incremental benefits. Um, but at times, the effects of not having patient-relevant outcomes available for use can be profoundly harmful. Um, and to illustrate that point, I want to go back to 
the example of stimulant use disorders that I mentioned a minute ago in that urine endpoint. This endpoint gets used because it's the only well-validated endpoint available for these types of trials. And since there is no established, you know, quote-unquote, safe level of use for stimulants the way there is for, for alcohol, for example, um, trials for interventions uh, in, these, in this condition have to show zero levels of stimulant as an endpoint. In other words, you know, effectively it's, it's requiring abstinence uh, for a, of the patients in the trial for a successful clinical trial. Um, for the community we're trying to help here, this is an absurd endpoint. It is absolutely not realistic to achieve in a clinical trial, and the result has been trial after trial in this condition failing. There are no FDA-approved therapies for this disorder, even though there are treatments that might help. Um, and because there are no FDA-approved therapies, private and public health plans in the U.S. at least, um, are not paying, generally speaking, for um, any therapies that might work. So in this case, the lack of meaningful endpoints creates a series of cascading failures, uh, and it completely forsakes a population in need. Meanwhile, we could ask, what do people in this community want from a treatment? You know, they might want reduced cravings. They might want um, to reduce the number of emergency room visits that they have to make or be able to get back to work or have stable housing. Um, there's a whole series of things that you might look at here. So this is an example of where we're not even getting close to what's relevant for patients. And the consequence affects not only the quality and quantity of information available for healthcare decision-making, but the options accessible to patients for treatment in the first place. Absolutely. So you, you mentioned just now some of the uh, issues associated uh, like barriers um, towards the adoption of patient-relevant outcomes, for example, a lack of validated endpoints in your example with stimulant use disorder trials. What, what are some of the other barriers that sort of have really hindered us adopting these important outcomes in research? Right, exactly. And I'll start with that lack of validated endpoints. I, I think it's important to remember that outcome measures have to meet some very tough scientific standards if we want them to be useful in clinical trials. They have to be reliable, repeatable, proven to measure what they're intended to measure accurately. They have to be able to be administered and interpreted in the same way by different testers. So, you know, this is pretty doable when you're talking about laboratory tests. It gets a bit harder when you're talking about imaging or certain clinician-reported outcomes, um, and then it may be even harder for patient-reported outcomes. Uh, it can take years to develop and validate good quality-of-life tools, for example. So we should not be in a hurry to throw everything out and start again. We really have to pick our priorities and be judicious in figuring out where to put our energies. Um, going back to that um, uh, JAMA ophthalmology paper that I mentioned uh, a moment ago, Ian Saldana's uh, paper, those authors found that out of 26 outcomes 
identified as patient important. Um, there were 10 that do not typically get measured in trials. And okay, that sounds bad, right? Oh my gosh, there's 10 patient important outcomes that we're not capturing in this condition um, of dry eye. But, it, but you know, you could turn that around and look at it differently and say, well, there are 16 of 26 patient important outcomes that we are capturing. So what does this mean? How should we react to this situation? Um, wh what do we do with this kind of information? Um, does this mean that we have to go and find or develop validated tools for all 26 of those patient important outcomes and insist that they be used in trials for this condition? Um, in, in my view, um, this is not the right answer. It's just not feasible scientifically or economically. We have limited research resources and limited time and limited statistical capacity in any given trial for assessing endpoints. So again, we really have to be strategic and we have to weigh very real trade-offs. Um, the reason tumor regression gets used in oncology trials is that you can get the trials done fairly quickly. Um, if you want to study overall survival in, um, in many types of cancer, that's gonna take a long time. Um, I think many patients, when confronted with those choices, would want the trials to get done sooner, even if it means a compromise on the evidence that's available to them um, at first. So, you know, they, many patients might consider this a fair trade-off. But then I think it's important also to remember that patients aren't the only stakeholders at the table. In some situations, the use of these so-called surrogate endpoints can cause challenges in getting coverage. Um, in some situations, payers have pushed back on biomarker endpoints, um, and this recently happened with, in the U.S., with exon skipping therapies for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, patient communities were really upset over this, um, but, um, but payers pushed back and would not cover what had been FDA-approved therapies because of this issue of biomarker endpoints that did not have a proven relationship to clinical benefit to patients. And so this is another kind of trade-off. Um, and, and a final trade-off that I'll mention here is um, the one between disease-specific clinical outcome assessments and generic ones that can be used across conditions. Um, we need to be developing generic tools as much as possible that can be, that are cross-cutting, that can be used across conditions because it's more efficient and uses our limited research resources in a smart way. And in the case of quality of life tools and some other tools, it can facilitate the work that health economists do, which is certainly important to understand. And remember also that one goal I mentioned earlier is getting more consistent outcomes across studies. For the purposes of understanding bodies of evidence, um, we really don't want a whole lot of competing outcome measures for the same purpose. You know, because this under, uh, undermines the ability to really understand the whole body of evidence. Um, but at the same time, some patient groups complain, legitimately so, that some generic uh, tools simply aren't well suited to their situations and that disease-specific tools need to be developed and validated. Um, you know, these are 
difficult questions to adjudicate, and we need to find the appropriate balance there. So, so these are all the barriers. I, I actually wouldn't, I, I'm, I'm not sure I want to call them barriers because they're not things that we just need to overcome. Um, they're actually just the practical realities we have to negotiate um, in a complex world. The bottom line is we can't have everything we want. So we have to work together to figure out what makes the most sense and what we can have. Absolutely. So from your perspective then, what are the next steps? So even if it's a slow process, how can we work towards increased adoption of outcomes and endpoints that are more patient and generally, as you mentioned, stakeholder relevant? Right. So um, I will tell you what my organization is doing to address these challenges. And I think, um, you know, I'm biased, but, uh, I, I, you know, what we're doing, I think, points towards what are the steps that, that really need to be taken now. Um, we are working with patients and other stakeholders to develop priorities for patient important outcomes and balance those with the needs of other stakeholders. So, you know, we host meetings and interviews and focus groups and structured exercises with patients to learn about patient preferences and priorities. We also conduct multi-stakeholder meetings with payers and industry and patients and other groups to try to illuminate the outcomes that are important to all these different decision makers, and in particular, payers. We're fortunate to have positive relationships with many payers and to be able to act as a neutral forum for dialogue um, to sort of broker a better understanding between payers and industry and, and other stakeholders. So, you know, it allows us to try to anticipate the needs of payers sooner in the clinical development process. And we have to do that if we want to reduce barriers to coverage and reimbursement later on, because let's not forget, coverage and access to medicines is a patient important priority. Um, another thing my organization does is structured consensus exercises to develop core outcome sets. These are minimal sets of outcomes that by consensus should be measured consistently across trials for a given condition. Um, in the process of doing this, in the way we do it, we include patients, providers, payers, industry, regulators, clinical experts, and others to help establish our recommendations. And we do the exercise so that patient important outcomes are prioritized for discussion and voting by the group. And then when we have those in that process of discussion, we try to balance those priorities with those of other stakeholders. So ideally, the final core outcome set should represent a basic set of parameters that when collected consistently, conserve the needs of pre-market and post-market decision makers and build a consistent, cohesive body of evidence needed to assess the comparative effectiveness and value of therapies and their performance in the real world. So in our view, you know, doing these, identifying the priorities, agreeing on, on basic sets of outcomes that should always be collected, you know, doing, understanding the needs of payers and having those conversations earlier, all of these things can help um, 
structure, um, you know, really sort of lay the roadmap for the priorities that we need to focus on for patient important outcomes. And if we do that well, then we'll be able to get there faster, um, identifying and incorporating those outcomes that are really most important to patients and, and that best serve their needs in combination with the needs of other stakeholders. Well, that all sounds uh, really lovely and uh, positive. So as a sort of final forward-looking question, I'll just sort of ask you from your expert perspective how, how you sort of see this field evolving in the near future. Um, yeah, and I, and I will say, I, you know, I am overall very optimistic, um, but I, you know, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to sound, um, you know, uh, sound like I think we're on the verge of utopia. Clearly, there's a lot of really hard work um, that needs to take place. And right now, sometimes it seems like there's a mad rush to revise everything. Um, you know, we've been a voice in the, in the wilderness for a long time about trying to um, incorporate patient values into the clinical research process. And it seems like now everybody wants to do that. And we're all, there's this sort of momentum to um, tear apart old outcomes and make new ones. And, um, but again, I think we have to be strategic about how we want to approach the problem. Um, and we need to try to use existing tools as much as we can. Um, I think the efforts will get more systematic and more coherent as we move forward. And I think we will find the right way to make trade-offs between scientific precision, clinical trial feasibility, and relevance to patients and other stakeholders. And an important piece of this, I think, is that the Food and Drug Administration has increasingly been taking a leadership role in this work, which I really applaud. They, they have the influence and the resources to significantly shape the direction we go in. And, and I can see them working to, um, to do it in a way that is smart. Um, but but the, the caution I would try to... Um, try to build around this is that we can't just be thinking about endpoints for regulatory approval. As I said before, we should view the regulatory step as one moment in a continuous program to understand the benefits and harms of drugs. We have to have an eye on that whole continuum and to avoid barriers to coverage and reimbursement for patients, we have to have payers in the same conversations as patients about priorities for outcome assessment. I'm hearing FDA representatives say this more often. I was in a meeting just earlier this week when, when I heard that theme from an FDA representative. So I think increasingly it will happen. To serve patients optimally, we have to keep this whole spectrum of evidence needs in mind as we go forward and, and find balance. Excellent. Well, Donna, thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast episode and sharing your insights on this really important and timely topic. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, to our audience as well, thank you for listening. And remember that you can find a whole host of resources on patient-centered decision-making and the associated benefits, challenges, and more on the evidence base at www.evidencebaseonline.com. <laughs>